Virtue is its own reward, because it carries no other. This is the Blackwater Ethercast. Hmm, I remember. It was the upstairs maid, Marie, her first mentioned the name the staff had given the cat, Puka. Hmm. It seems appropriate enough. The obstinate creature arrived from nowhere discernible, yet at random intervals can be found in absolutely any location of the castle. This includes supposedly locked rooms. I would assume that the tricky little thing darts in just after the human enters, but I swear, his abilities are uncanny. It is surely no accident that an unseen thief is called a cat burglar. In any case, his seemingly preternatural talents have inspired the staff to name him after the legendary race of hobgoblins, whose benefice or malignancy is always a bit vague. Pukas are supposed to be able to change into various animal forms, which makes it all the more appropriate in the folklore-soaked minds of the staff. Having thus emotionally attached themselves to the cat, it would appear that without provoking the sort of dissension I prefer to inspire in others' households, I am more or less stuck with the creature for now. As though I wasn't before. Small strange objects have been the subject of a fair bit of my attention since our journey to America. It took all of two days after our return to Blackwater Castle for Peter Duncan, town leader, sometime would-be occultist, and generally agitated visitor, to appear at its door. I am under the impression that he would have come sooner if he thought it safe to irritate me so soon after a journey. There is a certain amount of wisdom in his unassuming frame. The problem he wished me to solve was one of almost, but not quite, metaphorical invasion. Normally, the many secret societies that led to the British Isles get along as well as any set of topically related organizations. There is congeniality and rivalry, but generally their conflicts are no more than mere verbal sniping. A new group from some vaguely more southerly location had altered the dynamic, and the local secret society is aghast. Peter Duncan was nominated to bring the matter to my notice because the upstart group actually tried to steal something from Duncan's own house. The object of the attempted theft was an odd artifact of occult interest, and therefore in Duncan's collection. Supposedly, the thing is able to summon a legendary figure or creature, something more dramatic than a puka, for example. I am still uncertain which or what exactly they would see as the benefit of calling such a thing. However, Duncan has the artifact, and this new group wanted it, and in particular, from all the superstitious paraphernalia Duncan and the rest of the group had collected. This new group, called the Grey Stripe, is, I must say, fairly aggressive. These sorts of associations generally keep things quiet, entertaining their egos and their jaded tastes with pomp and ceremony and rituals just past the pale of polite society. The Grey Stripe appear to have a more active interest in the world around them, and they seem especially interested in devices that purport to have supernatural effects. Normally, of course, I would have little interest in such absurd squabbles, but for two things. Firstly, it is forbidden for anyone to cause trouble to my people, except for me. This is my domain. Secondly, 
I had already determined that on my return to Scotland I would attack the mystery of the strange artifact I had got from Gedge. It is one of those odd little objects which people cannot understand and so invent stories about. As such, it could well be the sort of object which would be of interest to this newly acquainted occult society. And that makes them of interest to me. I realize that I have not yet described Gedge's artifact. I wanted to first verify that it had not been stolen by him from one of you, my dear colleagues. I am now satisfied that none of you have even seen it before, which only increases my curiosity about its origin and previous owner. The object is about the size and shape of a goose egg, and symmetrical from one end to the other. It is apparently made of a single piece of topaz or glass of similar pale blue color. It is not perfectly clear, but has several occlusions and flaws throughout it, none of which reach the surface. A two-inch long brass pin is mounted at each end. Close examination with the glass shows some faint grooves here and there around the pins, strongly suggesting that they were attached to something, and very probably rotated while attached. The marvelous problem I have with this artifact is that it clearly does something, and was made to be attached to something but I have little idea as yet what it does, or what the rest of its assemblage even looks like. So you can see why I would be intrigued by news of a group so interested in bizarre artifacts that it is willing to steal them. Who knows what information I might be able to get from them. All this naturally passed through my thoughts in a pair of seconds, after which I turned my focus directly toward Duncan. Unsure of whether my stern expression denoted concern or annoyance, he fidgeted sheepishly. "'I shall look into it,' I declared, to his obvious relief. He began to thank me and take his leave, but I stopped him. "'To arrange so that this grey stripe does not attempt again to burgle your belongings, I will need to make a close inspection of the item which was the object of their thievish desires.' His face was full of incomprehension. "'Bring me the artifact they tried to steal.' The artifact in question is an odd little box with no visible hinges or a way to open it. The main body is perhaps ten inches square and four inches high and sits on four small bean-shaped brass feet. The lid, or what would be a lid if it opened, rises another four inches in the center, forming a low four-sided pyramid. It appears to be made of teak or similarly colored wood, which has been lacquered and then largely covered by filigreed brass. The open sections where the wood can be seen are mostly ornamental, but parts form strange letters or diagrams that resemble the magical sigils of centuries long past. There are smudges of ash here and there on the artifact, probably remains of whatever absurd rites it had the misfortune to take part in. As a whole, one could easily imagine the interest it arouses in the mystically minded. But to me, it suggested a lovely plan, and some of what was required for it was already at hand. It remained only to assemble the other pieces. Before I allowed him to leave again, I questioned Duncan closely regarding the would-be thieves. Though their faces were covered, he had come upon them unawares, and heard them talking from the next room. From what little he heard, from their accents he knew that they were from some distance south. This narrowed the search to most of the country. Some careful questioning regarding specific pronunciations suggested that one was from at least as far as Newcastle. The other was almost certainly from Glasgow, 
At last, a direction to begin looking. Hugh Robertson is known in some circles within Glasgow as a fairly successful business owner. He is known to me as an excellent and devilishly deceptive agent. He would be a perfect fit for this new assignment, and happened to be unoccupied by my business at the moment. His first task was to locate at least one member of the Grey Stripe within Glasgow. This turned out to be more of a challenge than expected. Most secret societies are dreadful at keeping their existence and membership anything like secret, likely because of the conflict between actual secrecy and flaunting one's special membership. However, this group took themselves a little more seriously, and it took Robertson a few days to track one down. The member he found, one Walter Muir, apparently the leader of the northern contingent of the Grey Stripe, lived in a small mansion at the edge of town, his land bordered by fields and gentle wilderness. It prompted another addition to my plan, which would include the use of a new conveyance built for me by one of my engineers. Details will follow, I promise. But first, a word about the legend behind the teak and brass object which sparked all this plotting and attempted thievery. No amount of research or a quiet inquiry would reveal the nature or name of the being which the thing was supposed to summon. Such researches are often fruitless, as folkloric detail has a bad habit of being lost with the passage of time. Normally, I would have continued to a pleasant search for rather longer before giving up the information as lost, but part of the goal was to forestall a repeat of the intrusion into my territory, and I had no idea when the Grey Stripe would try again. My move would need to preempt theirs. I would have to make a small leap to an assumption that they didn't know what it summoned either, and hope for the best. Not my normal mode of working. One does what one must at times. My artisans produced a duplicate of the object fairly quickly, and as they did so, I constructed a clockwork mechanism to fill it. The mechanism is fairly simple. A small influence machine, essentially the Holtz machine most of us are familiar with, generates electrical current. That current, directed to strategically placed arc gaps, causes flashes of light beneath the sigils on the artifact's surface, and those sections are made of glass painted to look like lacquered wood. A hidden button on one of the edges activates a timing delay spring which in turn activates the effects after a pause of a pair of minutes. The last thing I needed to obtain was a bit of costuming, easily accomplished, of course. It was black, Vaguely fearsome, and indistinct enough to allow the occultists to fill in the details of their summoned legend with whatever suits their knowledge, their fancy, perhaps their egos. The plan was to play on the tendency of most humans to refuse to admit, even to themselves, that they don't know something. After all, that's how these ridiculous myths came to be in the first place, isn't it? See something you don't understand, make up a story to explain it. Others invent more details and even the inventor of the original story believed the facts which didn't even exist moments before. Thus, humanity. Thus, a very useful tool in my dealings with the common herd. The group would be very unlikely to try to make actual contact with the illusory creature, startling and frankly unexpected as it would be for the artifact to succeed so dramatically. Nevertheless, I made sure that the deception would hold up from at least a couple yards away, and also arranged for the summoned legend to be of the aerial variety. Murphy, my lead engineer, has recently built for me a backpack with a series of small and remarkably powerful propellers, able to lift me from the ground with good agility even while carrying a small load. 
It was now time to set things into motion. After his initial meeting, Robertson reported that Walter Muir was intrigued in that marvelously pretentious way unique to overly excitable intellectuals who wished to cover their excessive excitability. The appeal of the artifact was undeniable, not the least reason being that it was the very item Muir had attempted to steal the previous week. Robertson's tale of playing Duncan for a fool charmed him all the more. With utmost seriousness, Robertson confided that his researches indicated the item was in fact a functional occult artifact, but could only be used once every year or so, and only on a night featuring a half-moon, whether waning or waxing. And of course, there just happened to be one in only two nights. It was an odd requirement, even for mystical nonsense, but I didn't want to wait for another week before acting. Muir bustled into action at this news, and promised to assemble all the region's grey-striped members at his home for a demonstration. I allowed Robertson to preen a little as he reported all this to me the next day, and shared an appropriately villainous laugh over Muir's absurd gullibility. Then we got to the business of the plans for the following evening. At the appointed time, just after sundown, Robertson arrived at Muir's dwelling, carrying his mystical mechanism. He was greeted by a man in an oversized monk's habit, hood drawn forward to obscure the top half of his face. The robe was black with, what else, a wide grey stripe around each upper arm and the chest, giving the effect of a more or less single band around it. As the group literally idolizes artifacts and devices, there were also small brass, copper, and steel gears sewn on here and there as decoration. The man said, Compostulant, and gestured that Robertson should come inside. After closing the door, he brought Robertson farther into the mansion, up some stairs, and to a library. Another occultist guarded the door. The two exchanged greetings or passphrases made of a very dubious Latin. The first said, Ad parvulus grandis revelio. My guess is that he meant, Through the small, the large is revealed. The second replied, The mysteries surround all, which came out something like Omnis Arcanae Circumdantibus. Robertson caught the meaning on that one more than the wording. The guard opened the door to reveal the library. French doors opposite the entryway led to a balcony overlooking the open lands. The furniture and decor were generally placed away from the center of the room and suggested that the library was used regularly for meetings and ceremonies of the sort which was about to occur. The other half-dozen regional members of the Grey Stripe, arranged in a loose circle around the room, raised their hands and intoned a greeting which blessed Hephaestus. Like the others, their black robes featured a broad grey stripe and apparently randomly placed gears. The leader, which of course was none other than Walter Muir himself, wore a black three-cornered hat with gears along its brim. <sighs> now look. I have no issue with gears in general, obviously. My area of most natural mechanical expertise is clockwork. As a representative symbol, gears may be used with great effectiveness. I know of at least several individuals and organizations which use some form of gearing in their insignias. There is nothing which more clearly indicates precise mastery of time, distance, and applied force. There is also a beauty not only in the elegant thought clockwork demonstrates, but in the assemblages themselves. I am not of the mind that workings must always be hidden away as though shameful. 
partial exposure of process has its place and indeed is often more attractive and interesting than a full encasement. However, a gear has very little use as mere decoration. What is it meant to convey? Facility with mechanisms? Does a dress in a flowered print indicate ability as a gardener? And why always gears and apart from each other to avoid even the implication of function? Why is it never cogs, escapements, cams, pinions, springs, or may have a small wrench or screwdriver? The wearing of a specialized wrench, however firmly affixed and therefore solely decorative, would be far more plausibly meaningful than little gears sewn on like metallic polka dots. They're pretty, I am told, just like polka dots and flowers. And yet it is always gears, and always actual gears. They have chosen them for a reason, and it is to make an implication while simultaneously avoiding it. But there are always those who cannot or will not see the difference. The ability to do so, or lack thereof, is reliable as a gauge of intellectual capacity. And for the existence of such a simple indicator, I should perhaps carry a begrudging gratefulness.
We all welcome Robertson to their august and arcane gathering, and with much flourish asked that the device be placed in the centre on the floor, on which was drawn a huge diagram, complex and full of mathematical suggestions of gathered power. Various vertices were augmented by a crystal, grey candle, or old-fashioned battery. The central point was crossed by four of the lines of the diagram, and flanked by a glass of wine and a small silver bell. With appropriate gravity and ceremony, Robertson placed the device at the nexus and stepped reverently back. To his slight surprise, Muir asked how the device was to be activated. Though he had prepared an activating ritual for the space of the mechanical delay, Robertson answered with carefully concealed amusement that a more extensive exhortation to Hephaestus would be appropriate, one of perhaps two minutes in length. Muir looked very satisfied at this. The robed circle bowed slightly and began a chant of the call-and-response variety. The uncertainty and stillness of the device dragged the less than two minutes into a seeming pair of hours for Robertson, but before the chant was completed, a whirring noise became audible from the centre of the room, and a moment later the sigils on the little pyramid began flashing weirdly, as though spelling out a message in some unknown language. The occultists were visibly startled by this and glanced about at each other. Muir wrapped up his chant fairly quickly with triumphant exuberance. As soon as they were done, the members began murmuring and moving toward the device in spite of themselves. Muir held up his hand and sharply reminded them to remain outside the diagram. He then turned and opened the French doors, the others slowly pulling their attention from the display and following him onto the balcony. Robertson remained just inside the room, watching the darkness over their shoulders, in case he needed to leave in a hurry. Or he tried to. Muir called him forward, bringing him to the railing beside him, and putting his arm around Robertson's shoulders like a proud uncle at his nephew's recital. The assembly waited with abated breath for an interminable three or four minutes, the only sounds the whirring device and a light breeze. Finally, a distant buzzing drone approached, as if from a group of huge hornets. A moment later, an apparition appeared in the darkness, a few dozen yards from the room's window and some distance above the unseen ground. The occultists stirred and began talking quietly and excitedly among themselves, apparently startled that not only did the device activate, it actually summoned something. The droning knew nearer, and the creature became distinguishable from the darkness around it. Generally human, the thing had enormous bat wings and a serpentine tail. As it approached the window, flashes of electricity arced between its fangs like a mouthful of lightning. It pulled up short several yards from the balcony, wings flapping, and let out an ear-piercing shriek. The grey striped members drew back slightly, at once fearful and delighted. An argument quickly distracted them from any present danger, however. A pair of occultists were very excited that they had caused the return of spring heel Jack. At last they would be able to find out whence he came, and how it was that he could make such amazing leaps, though of course, one said, gesturing at the flying thing above the neighboring field, it was clearly because, unreported until this very moment, he possessed a pair of wings. Other members scoffed and said that it was clearly a wyvern. Bat wings, tail, black all over, unlike Jack, and it was, as the artifact promised, a local legend. Wasn't spring Jack only seen in and around London? The others countered that, look, it has arms, and wild ones are well established as having no such thing. 
And Jack breathed blue and white flames, unlike any cold drake such as a wyvern, but exactly like our summoned legend here. Back and forth they argued for a time, a side discussion branching off to argue whether it was pronounced wyvern or wyvern, while Robertson listened in somewhat astonished silence. Eventually, Muir interrupted them. That's enough. We can examine it more closely once it's captured. Robertson could only stammer. When we what? Activate the nets! One of the occultists went to the left side of the balcony and threw a pair of double knife switches. Robertson could only look on, give the signal of completion as clearly as he dared, and hope for the best. Hovering above the field, propellers droning directly behind me, I could of course hear none of this. Though aware that the signal from Robertson would have to be more subtle than planned, I had little warning of trouble until sparks suddenly flared in various parts of the field. Small rockets zipped into the night, bringing with them their respective edges in corners of a series of nets which had lain about the treeless field. Some raised their nets directly skyward. Others, whether by design or by useful accident, dragged their nets in a huge arc to comb a region of air and return dramatically to Earth. Whatever the intent at the tactical level, the strategy was sound. I was quickly encompassed by nearly invisible netting, and got myself as close to the ground as possible before the nets interfered with my rotors. The final drop of several feet was more annoying than dangerous, and I managed to come down behind a group of shrubs without damaging the backpack. As triumphant cheering reached my ears from the mansion's balcony, I unbuckled the pack and wings and drew my knife. I keep it sharp enough to separate a hero from his pieties, so it made short work of even the reinforced netting. Clearing myself of the mess was quick enough, but I could leave nothing behind, not a single screw or a scrap of fabric. The grey stripe would be streaming onto the field in mere moments. I would have some respite as they armed themselves against whatever they had decided had been caught, but that merely changed my odds from impossible to dismal. Examination of the tangle of wings and nettings yielded little but a sinking feeling. It would take an hour to extricate my equipment, even with light and without brambles. Then I suddenly realized I was approaching the problem wrongly. I couldn't leave anything of mine behind, but that didn't mean I needed to leave everything else behind. Such a simple logical fallacy that I normally lambast others for, and here I was holding myself back with it. With speed rather exceeding that of safety, I cut a section out of the netting, in lines straight as possible between the points of the equipment, to yield freedom with a minimal number of cuts. I heard the occultist pour into the rear lawn of the mansion and prepare to enter the field. Muir officiously ranged them across the width of the house and instructed them to carefully go straight across the field, staying to their assigned latitude even if they saw something in someone else's area. He went on rather longer than necessary, allowing me to finish and collapse everything back together into something approaching its intended travel state. As they began to comb the field, I made my way with furtive speed toward my point of entry, a small irrigation gully which led to and from the nearby road. Unfortunately, near that edge of the field there was an extended area lacking any cover whatever. The half-moon would be insufficiently dark for me to safely carry my burden across it. The occultists were drawing closer. I saw Robertson glance at my direction as he slowly crossed the field, and he clearly noticed that the gap at the edge of the field would be too well lit for me to cross. So he stopped suddenly, peered intently at a group of large shrubs on the opposite side, and said, Hey, what in the world is that? 
He ran toward where he was looking, and, contra orders, everyone else followed. Once everyone was prodding at the bushes, I darted to the gully. A few moments later, I heard him say, Well, look at this over here. He had discovered the location where I had landed. Again, they all followed him and gathered round the net with its missing section. I heard them marvel that their summoned creature not only broke free, but removed or destroyed such a large part of the reinforced web. The argument about what exactly they had summoned began again, each side claiming that the new evidence supported their own theory. One observed that if it had left, it could return, and perhaps they should not be caught outside in the darkness if it did, considering that they had first forced it to come, and then tried to capture it. Muir agreed with this assessment, and led a return to the safety of the mansion. Once inside, he made it clear that the group was impressed with Robertson's acquisition of the device from Duncan's collection, and even more by his ability to contact the Grey Stripe. The successful activation of the device was considered a triumph, even if the summoned legendary creature had managed to escape this time. By the time it was safe to activate again, they would have made stronger preparations for its capture. Sherry was poured, and their new member boisterously toasted. In exchange for their guardianship of the summoning device, which of course would reside at Muir's dwelling, the Grey Stripe bestowed on Robertson an item which was interesting-looking at least, even it had no known or apparent use. Their odd token of esteem was given him with much ceremony, followed by more sherry. Robertson brought me his new artifact, partly as a prop for his story, and partly because he had no use for it himself. Rather less evocative than the artifact we had reproduced, it in fact looks suspiciously like a discarded prototype support arm. I build such things regularly. It is now one of the minor oddities in my cabinet of curiosities, and shall at least now have some function, namely that of confusing visitors who imagine that every cast-off piece of metal surely has a dark secret behind it, simply because it resides on a well-lit shelf. That is to say, it has gained usefulness in amusing me, and that is a fine aspiration for any object. The Blackwater Ethercast is written, produced, and performed by Nicholas Jovian. Additional voices by Anita Simon. Beginning and ending music is by Derek and Brandon Fichter. They can be found at dbfichter.bandcamp.com. Today's entertainment was So Freerick by Samuel Siner. Be sure to subscribe to the Ethercast and send your friends to lordblackwater.com so they can too. Also, visit lordblackwater.com to be the featured entertainment. And thanks for listening. We'll see if we can quiet down those propellers.